Morning, everyone. So as you know, um, we have been, Stuart, Jeff, and myself have been filling in for Andrew and answering questions from the congregation. Um, as you can tell, the, answer, or the question we're answering this morning, looking at this morning, is why don't people give? Specifically, why don't people give to God? Um, so when I first started working on this, I realized just how much the Bible says about money, uh, particularly in the Gospels. Um, so it was actually fairly difficult for me to pick a main passage to work off of. Um, so we will be looking at quite a number of texts. Uh, I've put most of them up on the PowerPoint, um, and I'll flip through them. Pending any technical difficulties, uh, they should be up there, but it's always beneficial to, to look at them in your own um, Bibles as well. So this morning, our main passage will be Luke 12, 16 to 34. So if you'll turn there with me, we'll stand once you found it and read the Word of God. The passage again, Luke 12, 16 to 34. Darcy wins. (laughs) And he told him this parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. He began reasoning with himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger ones. There I will store my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor they reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If, then, you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow, They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you man of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For these things the nation of the world, the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your father knows that you need these things. Seek first his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Father God, um, thank you for your word. 
thank you for this passage, um, and thank you for the words of Christ. Uh, I pray that um, that I would get out of the way, and that your message would be heard today, and any distractions that uh, may be in our minds this morning um, would be removed, and that we could just focus on uh, this passage and, and the lessons that you have for us when it comes to giving to you. In your name, amen. So, uh, you may be seated. In this passage, we see Christ tell a parable about a, about a rich man. Obviously, the, the fellow was very rich if he was able to tear down his existing barns and build new ones. Um, most of us, we try to use what we have. Uh, we don't have the kind of wealth where it's like, oh, I don't like my house. I think I'll rip the whole thing down, build a whole new one. We kind of renovate it, make it work. So the fellow clearly has substantial wealth. Uh, he's at a point where he's ready to retire and take it easy. Um, and he seems so confident in his wealth that he didn't even stop to consider death. Unfortunately for him, his trust wasn't placed in not one single thing that would last or ensure uh, a good future. His trust was entirely in the wrong thing. So as I was working through the passage, I wondered if, had the rich fellow in the story heard of the hope that Christ can provide, if he still would have chosen to put his trust in his wealth, or if he would have chosen to put his trust in Christ. I suspect when we read the passage, we think, okay, uh, this guy's a an idiot to choose his own wealth, which is fleeting, um, and as we read in the, in the end of the passage, where moth and rust destroy. We think, surely, if, if he had present, been presented the gospel, he would have chosen that, given, you know, the facts in the passage. Um, however, I think that we often struggle with the exact same problem as the fella in the passage. We verbally say that we trust God, and we acknowledge that He is our Savior and our Lord with our lips, uh, and even to a large degree, our actions. We go to church, and we fellowship, and, and we read the, the Bible, and, and go to study. But we don't let go of our finances or our assets. So then the question is, as we had on the board earlier, why don't people give to God? It's often because of lack of trust. We trust only in ourselves for, for provision, and we don't trust in God. We worry that if we give our hard-earned money to God, we won't have enough for what we really like to spend our money on. We put our security in our, in our own wealth. And we're afraid to relinquish control of our finances and to follow biblical principles in our finances. We don't, ultimately don't trust God at his word. We don't believe that God will provide a return on investment. Even though we believe that the stock market, RRSPs, GICs, um, the things that our banker tells us, we believe that those things will provide a return on investment. Some of us, even at times, believe that the casino or a lottery ticket will provide a return on investment. We intentionally put our cash into these things. Our banker says, hey, I've got this... A phenomenal investment vehicle you gotta put some money in even if you have to borrow some money from somewhere else 
you've got to invest here. I guarantee you, you'll see a return and it's going to be phenomenal. We're like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do that. I'll put some money in. I'll even borrow money to invest. Um, so we, we put our money where our mouth is. But when it comes to investing in God's kingdom, we have our doubts. Just like the rich man in Christ's parable, our hope is in our investments and in our assets rather than in God. Just like the rich man, we feel that they will provide us with security and we, will fe- we feel that they will provide us with comfort. If we look at 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Where, where you put your money, where we put our money... Shows where our trust lies. Like I said earlier, our, our culture often uses the phrase, phrase, put your money where your mouth is. Um, Jordan was in vehicle sales. I'm sure he had a lot of individuals that said they were very interested in the vehicles that he sold, whether the Dodges or the Nissans, whatever it was. And Jordan probably could read the individuals pretty well, um, whether or not the guy was serious right from the get-go, given he did it for a little while and has been in sales. Um, he could tell whether this guy was the kind of guy that would put his money where his mouth was, or if he was just blowing steam. Put your money where your mouth is. So in this situation, it's a perfect phrase. We say we trust God. We say we're interested in Christianity, interested in a car that's for sale. But our finances say otherwise. Whether we truly trust or not is actually fairly easy to determine. I, I think in, in Christianity, um, we often wonder if somebody's a believer or not. And it's difficult to gauge, to be honest. Um, there's been lots of theological discussions regarding, can you know if somebody is truly saved or not? If there ever was a gauge, I would suggest that one way you could tell whether somebody truly believed in God would be to take their bank statements and to look through their bank statements. Do their bank statements, do our bank statements show that we trust God? Is there a withdrawal every month that goes to our, the, the individuals who minister to us every month? Um, when we do our taxes, when we're collecting all our paperwork at tax time, um, will it be evident to our accountant who does our taxes that we uh, are Christians? It should be. It should be very evident to them. Better yet, will the CRA red flag us? Because it's so odd to have the amount of giving that we that you we give, um, and the CRA is like, why is this in our society? This is completely abnormal. Why does this individual give so much money? If not, perhaps we should ask ourselves if we truly trust our Father in heaven when he 
says he'll take care of us if we're generous or if we're truly just trusting in our own wealth. Ironically, the point of Christ's parable is that you will be less worried if you give to God. At, at the end of the passage, in verse 26 and 25 for that matter, we see, If then you cannot even do this very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Key word there is worry. Also in uh, 25, And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? The very thing that we're trying to do away with by accumulating wealth, uh, we want to have an easy, easy lifestyle. Uh, like the rich fella said, um, eat, be, take life easy, drink and be merry. We want to do that. We, and we're worried that in, if we come across uh, financial difficulties or maybe get laid off or um, have an unexpected expense, that we won't, our future is now at stake. We won't have the comfort pardon me, that we were hoping for in the future. So, our, the very thing that Christ suggests to do is actually what would eliminate the worry in our lives. If we give to God, our worry will go away. So, to reiterate, where we invest indicates exactly where our dependence lies. Are we dependent on money? And our material possessions, um, our retirement savings, our assets, um, our material um, wealth, or are we dependent on God? So, for myself, as you, as most of you know, I drive a gravel truck. Um, I enjoy my job. There's some perks to it. One of the perks is that I can spend a fair amount of time when I'm not dealing with a customer or loading a truck or, or doing something else, listening to the radio. I enjoy music, as most of you know, uh, but I also listen to AM 1140 or AM 700 and uh, try to tune into programs like Ravi Zacharias or Focus on the Family or Chuck Swindoll um, and Insight for Living. So a few years ago, I heard a sermon by Chuck Swindoll that actually challenged me and convicted me. Um, I would say it was probably four or five years ago. And it was a stage in our lives um, where, uh, as you know, the government was shifting, the economy was shifting, and neither were, were shifting for the better. So the, the message of the sermon was challenging believers to become the generous giver that God desired them to be. Chuck taught that scripture says that if we step out in faith in this area, that there would be blessings for us. My wife and I decided to be more generous, even though mathematically it didn't make sense. Right? The economy is getting worse. The government doesn't seem to give any reason to biblical finances. Um, so mathematically, if we give out more, essentially we're increasing our expenses. In theory, we would have less at the end of the month. And since that time, our financial situation has become more relaxed. So, some of you may be thinking, okay, what's Roger saying exactly? Is he saying, if I give, I will get? Um, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not preaching health and wealth. Um, I'm not preaching that uh, give to get. Uh, it, 
uh, like some, as we know, some preachers may. Um, I wonder if the reason that our financial situation is more relaxed is because rather than trusting in our finances and my efforts uh, to generate income um, and uh, our assets, um, we're trusting in God. And that's removed an element, the element of worry, as we see in verses 25 and 26. I've, we've put our, our money where our mouth is. We've put our finances into action and said to God, listen, you say these things in Scripture. Uh, there's a, a parallel passage to the one we read this morning in, in Matthew. Um, so it's, and it's elsewhere in Scripture. So God says that he'll do these things. So we, we decided that we would um, apply these things. And in so doing, uh, our worry has decreased. So just to clarify, as I said earlier, I'm not proclaiming a health and wealth gospel. I'm not saying give to God and your wildest dreams, your wildest financial dreams will come true. It's not a magic recipe um, from God to become filthy rich. Uh, if, and if that's how we approach it, if we think, okay, if I give generously to God, then I will uh, uh, get a huge return on investment, I would suggest that that's the wrong motive. If, if that's how we approach it now, we are seeking his king, or our own kingdom again versus ours. Uh, versus his, rather. So lesson one is fear and a lack of trust in God and worry can keep a believer from giving to God. So just a couple quick notes on that. As, as with any area of sin, this principle has been reiterated to, to us time and time again, both from Andrew and, and uh, on the houseboat, Dan Jansen. As with any area of sin, if we let it become a pattern in our lives, it can lead to falling away from Christ. Um, so now I'm just going to shift a bit and look at the nuts and bolts of giving to God. Uh, kind of the W5 of giving, so to speak. So the first question then would be, who do we give to? First Corinthians 9, 11 to 14. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So, very clear and obvious in that passage, give to those who minister to you first. Paul is saying, because he ministered to the Corinthians, that they ought to support him. And in so doing, you're actually giving to God. We find this principle in Philippians 4, 14 to 19. 
Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent, more, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am, I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Um, so the key verse is verse 18 particularly the second part of 18. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Given the language, it is, Paul is referencing back to the Old Testament um, sacrificial system. And, and often the term fragrant offering, uh, the smell of the sacrifices, animal sacrifices, um, was was used, and in this case, Paul is referring back to that and saying that that's an acceptable sacrifice. So, in the beginning of the passage, we see that the Philippians are giving to Paul, and Paul is saying, because you're giving to me, and I've ministered to you, this is an acceptable sacrifice to God. So, by giving to your uh, the individual or the organization that ministers directly to you, you're actually giving to God. Which is our second lesson. As believers, we are to give to those who minister directly to us. This is giving to God. It's also interesting that Paul adds a promise at the end. Um, Skip back. In verse 19, God will supply all of our needs. Uh, One more point under the who column. uh, Who do we give to that I'd like to add? Giving to ministries that don't directly minister to you, such as missionaries somewhere, Bible translation group, um, or another ministry that is not considered, or should be, um, sorry, let me start over. Giving to ministries that don't directly minister to you, such as missionaries somewhere, or a Bible translation group, or any other ministry that is not directly ministering to you should not be considered part of your regular giving. Um, That's not to say you shouldn't do it, uh, but it's considered a love offering. It's in in addition to your tithe, uh, not as part of your tithe. Uh, So, uh, like I said, I'm not saying, not suggesting not to do those things. They're they're awesome. Um, But I am saying that as part of your your regular tithing, it should be going to somebody, whether, uh, like I said earlier in my illustration, um, I often listen to Chuck Swindoll, so that would be a ministry that I could give to, and that would be considered part of my tithe. Andrew ministers to myself, Dan Jansen, those would all be considered part of my tithe. So we'll move on to what? How much? What do we give? So, uh, both Abraham and Jacob, pre-law, gave 10%. So, if we go to Hebrews 7.2, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. 
I'll just focus on the beginning part of the verse. Hopefully the second part of the verse doesn't come up in dialogue. <laughs> um, and if we look at Genesis 28.20, Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I, journey, I will... That looks like the wrong... Oh, I don't think we have it all there. I... If, if you wouldn't mind turning with me to Genesis 28.20, we've got a glitch on the screen here, and I'll read it out loud. Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all of that you give me, as in God gives me, I will give you a tenth. So here we see two examples, uh, one of Abraham and one of Jacob, each giving 10% to God pre-law. Another point to add, also Christ in any of his teachings never abolished giving 10%. So as Christians then, it's a good guideline or a good place to start uh, giving is 10%. 10% of, uh, was part of what the Israelites were to give under the Old Testament law. Now, we are free, obviously, um, from the law under Christ. So for us, it's not law. We're not required to give 10%. However, in hearing that, me say that, if your reaction is, if we say to that, okay, great, we don't have to, we're not under the law, we don't have to give 10%, that's kind of a two-sided coin. The same... If you're going to say, I can give less because we don't have to give 10% or I don't have to give it all, I, I would suggest to you, well, I can use that same argument to say, well, maybe you should give more since it's not 10% is a law. Um, as we know that when the Israelites settled in the Promised Land, out of the 12 tribes who settled, only the tribe of Levi didn't receive an allotment of land. This was because they were to minister to the Israelites as priests And the other 11 tribes were to each give 10% of their income to the Levites. So we see that there's a principle here as well. God felt that 10% would be a figure that um, if the rest of the Israelites each gave 10%, the Levites would have exactly what they needed to live off of. 10% mathematically, God feels, works. So the Hebrew word for tithe... Um, is spelled M-A-A-S-E-R. I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I'm sure that I'll get it wrong. If Peter Fast was here, I'm sure he could do it correctly. But the meaning of the word is important. It means to set aside a tenth. So wherever you see the word tithe in Scripture, in in the Hebrew text anyway, it means to set aside a tenth. Um, So... Although we're not required to give 10%, it is a good guideline to model our giving after, which is lesson three. Just a couple quick clarifications I feel should be made about this. Uh, What we give should be calculated before taxes and deductions come off our paycheck instead of after. Uh, We get services, although they may be frustrating to us sometimes given 
the, the service that the government provides, and, and we get um, uh, assets for the taxes that come off of our paycheck every month. We have hospitals that we can walk into free of charge. We have roads that we drive on free of charge. Uh, we have governments that look out for us. We have a military that looks out for us. All those things are things that we benefit from by paying our taxes. They come off of our paycheck. Therefore, because it's, it's essentially income, um, we need to pay our tithes, tithes on our paycheck before the taxes come off. Um, another point that I want to clarify is that if, if we're not doing our finances biblically, and, and we're not seeking scripture and seeking counsel on how to do our finances, then 10% is going to sound like a big number. But if we do our finances biblically, um, then it will be far easier for us to give 10% or more, whatever, whatever we decide to give. So the next question we're going to seek out to answer is when. For that, when do we give? Proverbs 3, 9 to 10. Honor the Lord with all your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. So key word, obviously, the second part of verse 9, first fruits. Uh, give to God before you give, before you do anything else. Don't give to God what's left over. Uh, that's the first fruits. If you wait till the end of the month, our lifestyle, if we wait till the end of the month, our lifestyle will likely absorb everything and we'll have nothing left to give. So, I'll give you an example of what it's not supposed to look like. I come to church on a Sunday morning and I see the offering box at the back table uh, and I think to myself, oh yeah, I returned my empties to the bottle depot yesterday. I think I got an extra 20 in my wallet here. I'll just give that to God. That is not giving your first fruits. Um, our giving has to be our number one financial priority, not an afterthought. It must be deliberate. It's the first thing that comes off of our paychecks. Lesson four. As believers, our number one financial priority should be giving to God. Um, again, a little clarification. If you're not seeking out biblical counsel in your financial decisions, you're putting yourself into a position where it may be difficult to give to God. So the next question we seek to answer, and I can come back to these lessons afterwards in the dialogue if you guys need them again is how, or pardon me, why. No, my, my apologies, it's how. Luke 21, 1-4. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So, 
We are to give sacrificially, not out of our surplus. Back to my illustration of going to the bottle depot and having an extra 20 and putting it in the offering box, that's not sacrificial. It's not, that's giving out of your surplus. The reason her two coins were more, Christ said, um, this poor widow has put in more than all the others, is because within the context of her finances, it was a lot. It's not determined by a dollar figure. It's determined by the context of your finances. So we can't say that there's a carte blanche dollar figure that everybody should give because everybody's financial pardon me, context is different. A huge sacrifice for one individual would be barely noticeable for another individual who, who makes much more. So it should be a sacrifice. To put it in other words, what are we going to give up or what are we going to do without so that we can give more to God? My assumption is, based on the latter part of the text in verse 4, she put in all that she had to live on. My, my assumption is that she would have had to miss a few meals. She was putting her money where her mouth is. Quite literally. What are we going to give up? This lady, this widow gave up a few meals. Are we willing to give up a few coffees this week? Uh, maybe something to do with our hobbies? Uh, maybe are we going to consider, okay, I really want this new car. Maybe I'll just keep driving my old one, even though I don't like it as much, and I'll give the balance to God. Even bigger sacrifice, Maybe you're thinking about upgrading your house. You know, maybe we're thinking, uh, I want to move from a small house to a big house or a house in town to a house in the country. Maybe we want to give that as a sacrificial gift. So, our giving should be sacrificial as a response to Christ's sacrifice. Lesson five. Just a couple clarifications on this also. This passage is not a prescription to give everything that you have. It was just describing what happened. 1 Timothy 5.8 makes it obvious that that's not what is expected. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worth, worse off than an unbeliever. So, obviously, we're, we're not to give everything we have because we're supposed to provide for our own household as believers. And that's, that's part of our witness. Um, if we truly comprehend the sacrifice that God has made, and we sang about it earlier in, in the second song that we, that we sung, we will be glad to give sacrificially to God as a response to his love. So then, we've got one more question to answer in the W5. The why. We'll look at Nehemiah 13, verses 11 to 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. 
So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. So we see in the Old Testament uh, a situation where the, the remnant of Israel was no longer giving to the Levites. Um, they weren't giving their 10%. So the Levites essentially had no choice. Back to what I said earlier, the Levites didn't inherit, uh, didn't get an allotment of land. The Levites' inheritance was God, and they were to be priests to the rest of the tribe of Israel, the rest of tribes of Israel, the remaining 11. And those remaining 11 were to give a tithe to the Levites. Obviously, in Nehemiah, that is not occurring any longer. So the Levites were forced to go back to their own fields. So uh, in the Old Testament, Israel was an agrarian society. What this meant was they they had to provide for their own welfare by going back to farming. They went back to work. So we give so that our pastor and those who minister to us can continue doing so rather than having to go back to work and find work elsewhere. Why is the house of God neglected? The tribes of Israel, in, in their failure to give, neglected the house of God. Let's just look at 1 Corinthians 9.14. So this is reiterated, this principle is reiterated in the New Testament. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. We need to give regularly to those who minister to us so that they can continue God's work. Lesson 6. So, um, obviously I've covered a lot of text. Uh, There's a lot of principles uh, that we see in that text. Um, As with most things in Christianity, uh, there's a healthy balance, right? Everything is about balance. I've done my best to illustrate this, but I'm certain that in dialogue um, that we can bring some further clarification. 